where's the dharma in the middle of these these questions of our society that's something that we've gotten some pushback on especially from some of our older teachers but not exclusively um is this real practice is this really dharma and what else can it be that's what i have to to say you know if we're talking about waking up then we have to include all beings we take this vow to live for the benefit of all beings and if we're leaving some beings out whether intentionally or inadvertently then we're not really practicing Tenku Ruff Osho began her journey into Buddhism with a five-day retreat in Japan in 1997. But she took to the practice and started sitting intensively in Zen monasteries in Japan and North America under the guidance of Tessai Yamamoto Roshi. She was ordained in 2006 and received Dharma transmission from Yamamoto Roshi in 2010. Tenku holds a Master's of Divinity from Maitripa College, a Tibetan Buddhist graduate school in Portland, Oregon, and served as president of the Soto Zen Buddhist Association for the last three years. She is the Director of Spiritual Services at Phelps Hospital in New York and the guiding teacher of the Beacon Zen Temple in Beacon, New York. You are listening to Sit, Breathe, Bow, a podcast for practitioners. Each week, leading Buddhist teachers share life experiences and insights to help guide your meditation practice, as well as your life off of the cushion. I'm your host, Ian White-Marr. This podcast is sponsored by the Quantum Online Sangha, a virtual Zen practice community of the International Quantum School of Zen. Members of the online Sangha meditate together, study with teachers, and participate in workshops and courses to develop their practice. Listeners of this podcast are invited to try a free month of training, which includes live Q&A interviews with Zen teachers, discounts on webinars and online classes, and access to a private community where students can discuss their practice and receive guidance. To access your free month of training, simply visit quantumzenonline.org and click on the free trial membership button on the homepage. Tenku, you work, uh, in addition to being a guiding teacher of a Buddhist temple, you you work as a, a chaplain in a hospital. And here we are in this pandemic. We've been in a pandemic now for about 10 months or so. And, you know, we've just had this new rise in infections. And I'm wondering how you engage with people. I mean, you, you have a shaved head and, and I don't know what kind of clothing you wear when you're there, but you might look a little different than the priest people are used to or, or something. And I, I'm wondering how you engage with people as a Buddhist in these situations um, and how also your practice is sort of guiding you as you go into to sit with people who are in the hospital, not necessarily for COVID, but obviously that's got to be a concern for them. Yes. Um, thank you, Ian. 
So I do wear robes. I wear my work robes when I'm, I wear them all the time, but I wear them in the hospital and I do have a shaved head. Mm-hmm. What I've learned is it really just takes one chance to meet somebody. And this is always true. And when we are walking into a new situation, it's especially true. So I just take advantage of that first moment when we meet and really genuinely meet the people. And I find that if I make that effort and really do that in a, in a very heart-to-heart way, then they're not so disarmed by my clothing. Meaning that we, when we really connect, it's more about our human-to-human connection than about our physical appearance connection. Mm. And I'm, you must get questions about it, though. And <laughs> You know, yeah. these days I get no questions because I am head-to-toe clothed in PPE. Oh um, and all right. they can see are my eyes behind um, three layers of plastic. So <laughs> right. um, I do get questions, and it depends on where I am. Um, there are probably a lot less questions you, than you might imagine. Mm. Um, my experience is that people in the hospital are sick, mm-hmm. and they are having a hard time many times. And when I ask them questions about themselves, then they want to talk about themselves. Mm -hmm. So their interest is less in me and more about their own suffering, which is so acute when they're in the hospital. When I do get questions, it's just really dependent on the place where I am. For example, right now I'm working in a hospital that has a lot of um, Catholics, a high Catholic population, and they like it better when I'm wearing the black robes. <laughs> oh, interesting. Yeah, of course. But working in Oregon, you know, they liked it better when I was in the more friendly blue color. So everybody has an opinion. I can't yeah. predict in advance what their opinion is going to be. I just try to really meet them heart to heart and let's, let us connect from that place and let everything unfold from there. And do you think that there's a particular way that you come to the meeting um, as a Buddhist? Or is there some part of your training that you think has, has prepared you for this? You know, it's one moment after another, because a lot of these people aren't allowed to stay for very long. Yeah, I have found... You know, it's interesting that you asked this today because I made the decision a few days ago to really treat this in the same way that I treated my monastic training, which was took place for 10 years. And when I did so, I what I decided is that I'm working a lot. It's very intense. There's a lot of suffering and um, I can never do everything that's asked of me. I never will be able to. And what I can do is cut out the extra. So cut out even the extra in my own mind. So I've really renewed attention to my focus. I've really cut out extra things lately. In fact, this podcast will be the the last type of thing like this that I do until you know, hopefully around January or February, things will start to ease off again. And 
the what I feel I can bring to this as a Buddhist is I think it's something accessible to all of us. But I find each person interesting and I I can bring in a strong sense of the stillness that I've cultivated through my my practice in the monastery and my time in silent zazen practice. And in doing so, I I'm not as agitated by the chaos around me. So this week was a really good example. You know, as things amp up, people are fearful and events that might be minor events become major events. And I noticed the pull in myself to to get sucked into that excitement and that fear. And I felt my practice really grounding me back out of it and allowing me to stay present to it in a way that's useful and brings in stability and calmness rather than um, the freaking out (laughs) nature of it. So I try to bring that in everything that I do. And right now, the, the extreme nature of the work is forcing the issue more than usual. So when I, when I came back and I made this decision, you know, I'm, I'm going to cut out all the extra and just really get up in the morning, do my practice in the morning, go to work, see people all day at work, come back home, do my practice in the evening, go to bed. That's it. When I made that, I, it felt good. I was like, oh, yay, I get to be in the monastery again. <laughs> so, so I think that's, that's my particular perspective. And I'm sort of, I guess I'm a little bit struck just by the intimacy you have with COVID. I am, I work from home now. I, <laughs> the most I really see people is I, I go to the supermarket or something like that. Uh, but for the most part, my life has, there aren't a lot of places where I might necessarily engage with it, but you are, you're literally walking into a place that might be treating people with this this very sort of sticky illness. Mm-hmm. I'm wondering if there's anything about the intimacy of this, you know, of this experience that has brought, you know, brought some of these lessons that we mm-hmm. learn through the through the Dharma. Yeah. So I'll start by saying that the intimacy of COVID began in my own body Mm. when I actually had it in the spring. Oh, my goodness. And I can't quite say what it taught me, but I'll say, I will say that it taught me something very significant that's still unfolding, Mm -hmm. you know, on on a real cellular level. And then when the, when it really hit New York and I was caring for people through my temple from the from that point of view at the same time that I was ill, I even I had dreams about being in the hospital and working as a chaplain again. So I felt very pulled to jumping in and helping in whatever way I could. So when the opportunity came up, I did. And the intimacy is um, no, I find it so beautiful and touching and nourishing at the same time. I do go into the rooms and I meet with the patients and I'm often 
the only person other than the nurse that they see. And the nurses, of course, are very busy. So they have to come in, do their thing, and leave. And the people are so often so fearful. (laughs) And so then everything is stripped away. And this is always true in chaplains, or I'll say often true in chaplaincy, but it's particularly acute right now. So we literally have this private bubble to ourselves, you know, sealed off by a door. And we, I, I'm covered in, in PPE, you know, so it's, I have on a mask. It's hard for people to hear my voice because of the mask and the mask on top of it. And then I have on these goggles and my hair is covered, my body is covered, and my hands are covered with gloves. So it's like trying to connect through all of these layers and layers and layers of stuff at the same time that there's noise in the room from the oxygen. And sometimes, especially if the people are older, they can't hear. So it really forces the issue of intimacy. And there's, there are two ways that I have of expressing that, or maybe three. And one is through my eyes, which I've learned to make very expressive which doesn't come naturally to a Zen practitioner, right? Um, The second is through touch, just holding a hand, even through all that stuff. And the third is through presence. And taking away all the the other things and just connecting in that most basic level feels so beautiful and so genuinely intimate that I come home from work just full of so much appreciation and fullness at the end of my day. I really believe that there's very little work that's as meaningful as like being present to another human being. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Sometimes I, <laughs> I like to imagine, you know, like things like carpentry, you know, you, you finish a roof and you're like, yeah, the job is done. Yes. you know and there's a certain satisfaction there you know where but also there's this satisfaction of um actually seeing another person and being seen right i think a lot of a lot of people it's not that they don't get the option or the opportunity but from you it's you know it's it's requested Mm. And that's a real kind of gift. Yeah, it, you know, I, we have this all the time, the ability to be present to other human beings. Mm-hmm. And we don't take advantage of it. Right. And when it's our professional role, then I get the chance not only to take advantage of that intimacy, that connection, that chance for that. I get to hear people's most amazing stories that they have. It's so wonderful. I've heard stories of people who died and came back. I've heard stories of that thing that happened in their 20s that changed their entire life, or of their beautiful, wonderful families, or how much they miss their cats. And it's all so beautiful. And I just... I feel like I fall in love with humanity over and over throughout the course of my day. So in many ways, it's an unnatural situation. 
And how many chances do you get in life to go up to a perfect stranger and ask them about their most intimate feelings, about their spiritual life, and what gives them support and what causes them suffering? And in other ways, I've found that that ripples out for me in my day-to-day life. I was thinking this week about walking down the street of New York a couple of years ago and seeing a woman on her phone. She was passing me in the opposite direction on the sidewalk, and she was just sobbing. And something in me stopped and turned to her, and I said, can I give you a hug? And she said, yes. And I gave her a huge hug and finished and we both kept walking what would the world be like if we could be that present to people you know in just everyday life to our neighbors across the street and you know to our colleagues at work and i think you know we're guarded against that but the possibility is always here and it's something i really craved for many years and i'm so grateful to my work as a chaplain for teaching me about because there are skills that go with it you know it's not just magical um learning those skills has really helped me really hone the ability to do that better and i those skills are available to every single human on the planet and if we all could develop those skills we could all be present to each other more fully and really connect on that deepest heart place that we're so craving. You know, there was this image that came to me just a moment ago when you were talking about, you know, being layered up with the PPE and, you know, the gloves and the mask on the mask and, the, you know, mm-hmm. probably the visor. And I, it sort of struck me that in so many ways, this is what the practice is about as well. Mm-hmm. You know, we just as human beings, we walk through the world, you know, we call it our small self or whatever we call it, you know, mm-hmm. and really it's like these layers of illusion yes, that we've piled up. And there's something, there's something in the awkwardness of the layers. There's something in the, you know, something about that causes shame to appear or whatever. Mm-hmm. And because we do that, it's so hard for us to accept the hug on the street unless, mm. you know, we're having a total meltdown, you know, and there's right. like no other option, <laughs> right? It's like, yeah, I need a hug because there's nothing. But most, there's a lot of people feeling sad and yeah, they'll turn that hug away because, you know, they have these layers and layers that are on top of them. and Right. So I just kind of, it made me think of, you know, when we come to this practice, it's some of it is just how do we let go of those layers so that we really can be right there, both to hug and to receive the hug. And of course, now we can't hug. You know, hugging is great. And we have to learn how to be genuinely, deeply, truly present without hugging or even without seeing each other in the same physical space. And you know what? It's possible. It's possible over Zoom. It's possible through phone calls. And it's a technique that we have to work on. I've been really working with 
the people who come for morning practice in helping people find the knack for genuinely connecting with others across the physical space. So if we were in the same physical room together and practicing, we would feel each other. I mean, those of us who practice have noticed that. You really feel the other people's energy. You know, when the, the energy of, of Sashin is very strong, you feel that and you can, you can join in it and ride on it. When somebody's having a hard time and crying, or you feel that in your body. And that's what makes us so connected and so intimate. And we have that energy to buoy our own practice when we're all in the same room. And we can find that energy and connect with it across the space of Zoom as well. But it takes some work. You know, it takes, it takes finding the knack. And I often think of um, when Arthur Dent is trying to learn to fly and he's told that the trick is to throw yourself at the ground and miss. It says there's a trick or rather a knack. And I think that's true when we connect across, you know, the world, wherever we are, when we're sitting together with people from New York and people from North Carolina and people from California, we can still find that energetic connection as if we're in the same physical space. And if we can do that with those people practicing together, we can do that with the whole universe. In addition to, you know, your work as a chaplain and then as uh, the guiding teacher at Beacon Zen Temple, you were recently the the president of the Soto Zen Buddhist Association. And I'm I'm curious what like what that was for you um in terms of you know here you are it's a faith that you've given your life to mm-hmm. and uh you were asked to you know <laughs> i don't know her heard the cats of these various teachers <laughs> in so many ways but ultimately you know the 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 everybody belongs as a member mm-hmm. For a reason, being that we believe that uh, you know that this practice, in your case, Soto Zen, uh, has an answer for people who are suffering, mm-hmm. and I'm I'm just a little interested in what that experience was like in terms of mm-hmm. trying to carve a vision for or or help create a vision for Soto Zen in in the United States and. Maybe, maybe even beyond the United States. Yeah, wow, that's a big question, Ian. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and I'm sure it was really complicated, but it is. Um, a few things come to mind. One is, I really felt I was coming in not as an expert. Mm-hmm. There's so many things I didn't know. But one of my personal superpowers is admitting what I don't know and asking for help. <laughs> so I asked for help from a lot of people and I got it. And so that, that's one thing that really was beautiful, really helped me to figure out how to do it and how to do it in a way that was a genuine expression of my practice and not just a, a task that I needed to do. Um, so I, I'm thinking back to when I started 
And I had this vision that, you know, at that time, we were already seeing a lot of political discord and people were um, nervous, I'll say. And I had this vision that people should see a Zen monk on the street and be able to recognize them and feel a sense of peace and ease, mm. just that they exist. You know, of course, there's so much under that. It's not that they exist, of course. It's, you know, knowing that they've done certain trainings and that they are taught to be a certain way in the world and that their vow leads them that way in the world. And like, I wanted people to know that exists. And I was thinking back to a couple of times one of them was when my teacher visited New York City and he felt, you know, it was so big. He was so excited. He's never been out of Japan. And we saw a Tibetan Buddhist monk walk across the street. And in many ways to him, that was the most normal thing in the world to see a monk on the street. And in another way, he was so heartened by it. He was like, oh, oh, look at that. <laughs> look yeah. at that monk. <laughs> and I was like, yeah, in New York, we have a lot. <laughs> and a lot of them are visible. So that was one thing is how, how can we really push our practice and our organization to become that spiritual leader that so many people would find comfort in? And again, comfort in what we do and comfort in also just knowing that we're here. So that was a strong, that was a strong motivation for me. And uh, another strong motivation was passing the Dharma on to the next generation. So I was the young, I'm the youngest person to have sat in that role. And I'm not that young, to be honest. So it wasn't even about my generation, which is Gen X. It was about future generations. <laughs> so, you know, we're, my generation is, is, there are less of us. We're smaller in population. So we're just a blink, really. But my motivation was for, you know, the millennials and even the Gen Z and, and the people coming up. And how can we make it more relevant? So that was very strong for me. Yeah. And one thing that was particularly strong, well, I'll say two things that were particularly strong was looking at the at who we are as Soto Zen priests and looking around the room at the demographics and seeing a couple of things, or, you know, it could be a few things. One is that we are mostly white people. And another is not so apparent, but that we, in, in the older range of Soto Zen priests, we're pretty evenly split between men and women. But if you go to people age 55 and younger. At, when I first started, it was 80% men. And mm -hmm. so I was like, what's going on with this? And how can we lean in in a way that comes from a place of dharma? And really, because that's the only way that we can really face this as Zen priests. It must come from a place of dharma. And so that was also a motivating factor for me. Do you have any thoughts on why that is? Oh my goodness. I mean, why? Yeah, 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 yeah. I have had so many thoughts over yeah. time. I yeah. don't know the whys. I just know that we need to work on it. You know, the easiest why is, is implicit bias. 
Mm-hmm. So it has such a broad scope that we could cover a lot in that one <laughs> term. Right. Yeah. But I mean, when I think about where the sort of Theravadan community, the insight community has gone, it definitely feels like they have many more, or it's at least more balanced. Mm-hmm. And... um that's been my experience as well. It's like it just feels like there's more men teachers now. My my teacher happens to be a woman, and um, which is great. But it's it. I don't know. I just am not sure why Zen feels like it's gone in that direction. And I think that plays out actually in the quantum school. I think we're sixty forty men men and women just wow. as practitioners. Yes, you know. Which is um, peculiar since our, you know, our head, you know, the head of the school is a woman and mm-hmm, same mm-hmm. with the head of the European school, she's a woman. Mm-hmm. And uh, anyways, it's just curious how it's played out. Yeah, I can't say the whys. Mm-hmm. We, um, we did apply for a grant at the beginning of, wow, this has been a long year, <laughs> but at yeah, the beginning of this year. It's been so <laughs> long this that. year. Um, and we did not get it. Mm-hmm. Um, so it is, I think it's something, though, that we need to refrain from coming up with easy answers on mm-hmm. and really look into it more deeply. So everybody has their own opinions, but right. are those backed up with facts? Are those backed up with data? That's what we need to ask. So I like to leave that question open, but that's not saying to decide anything. And it's not saying that to close it. (laughs) It's saying, please leave that question open and please let's keep talking about it. And what I've noticed myself is that that question tends to get shut down very quickly. It was hard to keep the board interested in the question of gender equality. It um, we had the the very urgent question of racial equality, which was, you know, which has been so in our face, especially this last year, but definitely before that as well. Mm-hmm. And uh, the question of gender equality is is a little bit more. Um, I don't know. I can't say more, but it's it it's hard for people to stay open to. And I think sometimes people sort of want to separate that dimension of life, mm-hmm. sort of activist dimension of life, if you will, or the equality dimension from the practice itself. Yes. And I think part of you know, maybe however this becomes expressed by the millennials and you know z and that there hopefully will be some sort of more integrated because i i feel like the people that maybe you and i learned from although you i learned from people who received it from from korea but were here american and european um in many ways, I think they were kind of of that hippie generation, like trying to leave <laughs> leave something mm-hmm. behind, and they were they really were seeking refuge from 
sort of a capitalist culture, war culture, or, mm-hmm. you know, these uh, 70s, 60s issues. Um, but maybe for our generation, um, there's a much more moving towards the becoming, like being in the mainstream. Mm-hmm. Like where is Buddhism in the mainstream? Mm, that's an interesting perspective. Right? Yeah, may, we are definitely more in the mainstream. And you you also asked about where's the about the Dharma in the middle of these mm-hmm. these questions of our society. That's something that we've gotten some pushback on, mm-hmm. especially from some of our older teachers, but not exclusively from mm-hmm. um, is this real practice? Is this really Dharma? And what else can it be? <laughs> That's what I have to, to say, you know, if we're talking about waking up. And we have to include all beings. We take this vow to live for the benefit of all beings. And if we're leaving some beings out, whether intentionally or inadvertently, then we're not really practicing. Yeah, for me, the issue of liberation, right? If if we really are talking about a path of liberation, mm-hmm. and if there really is no separation or distinction, and right. what, what what is this? How can we be wounding part of ourselves? Yeah, the scholar um, Dr. Anne Glade called me, or not me, but in response to something I wrote, said, "Liberation Dharma is here," and I got so excited when I read that. Like, you know, I felt so awed and so humbled at the same time and i was like wow that is the best compliment i've ever gotten Mm. Asian dharma is here the more i think about it you know what other kind of dharma is there other than liberation dharma so i mean she was referring to liberation theology of course Mm -hmm. and um liberation dharma is this is the dharma and I think we're, you know, we're starting to see this with some people too, like Angel Kyoto Williams and, mm-hmm. and Lama Rod Owens and, um, that, you know, Liberation Dharma. Well, it needs to, it, I feel like the practice needs to change mm-hmm. um, I, I, while still being entirely grateful to, you know, the people who trained me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. We don't have to throw anything out at all. Right. We have to continue to grow and to learn and to, to change and to meet the situation in front of us. I remember um, I was having a text conversation with, with Angel Kyoto some years ago, and she was expressing frustration at the lack of leadership amongst Buddhists, especially in terms of race. And she wanted that person to come out. Who's, when is this person who's going to be our leader going to show up? And after a while, I was like, you know, I think you are that person. <laughs> and and I, that was about four years ago, maybe even more. And Look at her now. I mean, she yeah. is that person. It's yeah. so amazing and so wonderful. Yeah, she's pretty amazing. So given all of this, the, the pandemic, 
race, the uprising, the political situation we're still kind of in, even though we're post-election. Like, where do we go as, uh, you know, Buddhist teachers in this culture and also as, as students? Yeah, I think I would say the same thing to every single person is we have to stop waiting for that perfect leader to come or somebody to tell us what to do and focus on on being what we want the world to be. And we have such a both daunting and strong motivation right now in this pandemic and, and in our political crisis and in our racial crisis that it can feel paralyzing at times. And yet, if not now, then when can we do this? So I think we really have, this is the time we're in this. It's not going away anytime soon. This is the time for us to to really take our practice seriously, to take the way that we treat others very seriously, even the smallest encounters, and to create those ripples, you know, those ripples of compassion in the world. It, it's not a game and it's not a theory, but it's it's a it's a life and death. So that's what we need from each other is to be that perfect, whatever perfect means, which means real, to be that real practitioner, that real teacher that we have been waiting for, to be it ourselves. Because we, I think, you know, I've been thinking a lot about, or maybe not thinking about it, but noticing a lot, that I keep having this tendency over and over and over to want to be that person who helps those people through this pandemic. And each time I think that, I get smacked. You know, I am in this myself. We are all in this together. We are all scared and we are all isolated and lonely. And we we have all have the chance of getting sick. And given how we are all in the same exact boat, no, no one of us is separate from the others. No one of us is above the others. So the only way to get through this is to literally get through it, you know, to walk straight through this difficult time together, supporting each other as a community of practitioners. Thank you for listening to this episode of Sit, Breathe, Bow. I hope you found the conversation with Tenku Ruff Osho encouraging and helpful for your practice. You can find out more by visiting the website for the Beacon Zen Temple at beaconzen.org. I'll include a link to the Zen Center in the show notes. A special thanks to our sponsor, the Quantum Online Sangha. Listeners of Sit, Breathe, Bow are invited to try a free month of training with the online Sangha. To access your free month, simply visit quantumzenonline.org and click on the free trial membership button on the homepage. And please consider subscribing and leaving a review of this podcast. It helps introduce us to new listeners. I am your host, Ian White-Marr, and I hope you'll join me again next week.